0: The Beatles were one of the first bands to really nurture their fans. Perhaps that's why even those who never met them still talk about them with genuine affection. Our guest this week, though, doesn't have to imagine what it was like to have known the Beatles. Julia Bird is one of John Lennon's younger sisters. She was there when he learned to play music with their mother and she had to try to cope with his death in private as the world mourned. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis. And this is the third series of Beatles City. So it must have been incredibly hard for her to try and come to terms with his death in, you know, such a public pl- time. Yeah, Julia was saying that they just couldn't really escape it. I mean, the whole world was genuinely mourning his death, but for her, it was a much more personal experience to have lost her big brother, and she just sort of kept her away from talking about him publicly for a while. But then she was watching a documentary and found that there was quite a lot of information that was incorrect on it. So she felt that then she should start speaking out about him and particularly about her mother and, and correct any misconceptions people had about them. And I suppose that led her to be involved with the cavern too. Yeah, well, she says it's quite interesting that, you know, wherever she goes on holiday, she hears the Beatles, which I think is is all of our experience. And she decided in the end that there's no escape, so she may as well get right in the middle of it all. So she's a director at the Cavern, and she's so passionate when she talks about the club. She absolutely loves it, and I think for her, um, it's been a really positive connection to her brother. So, Julia, we're sat in the boardroom of Cavern City Tours and we're surrounded by photographs of the Beatles, including your brother, John. Could you ever have imagined that he would have this sort of this influence when you were a
1: child no this legacy isn't it it really is the legacy of john and you're absolutely right laura when i'm sitting here if we're in a meeting i tend to sit here there's a picture of john just behind you um in his sort of hamburgie type days with uh, the upturned jacket and it's that is so john of my childhood that i feel as if john's in the room with us
0: It's one of Astrid's pictures. Yes, yes, yes. So that's how you remember
1: him? It is is how I remember him, yes. I mean, that is the living John that we had with us, that age, that that I remember really, really well.
0: Do you look at it? You have just said you look at it during meetings.
1: I do, yeah. yeah. Because it's a big picture and my eyes are sort of drawn to it. (laughs) Um, I don't imagine him here, I just think, To me, John is an integral part of the cavern, but um, I don't believe in ghosts or anything. So for me, he's in it, imbued in it, rather than walking around in it, if you know what I mean. And that's the picture that reminds me that this place is as much John's as it is ours.
0: And so when you see that image and you're sat here, how do you you feel? Do you feel... Happy about it, or do you? Do you yes,
1: it yeah. It took me a time to sort of. Well, it took everyone a long time to come to terms with the tragedy, but it did take me a long time to come to terms with the loss of a brother that was so young. Mm-hmm. It's not talking about an idol, not talking about a songwriter, not talking about a beetle to it's everything was in the wrong order mm. wrong order yeah so uh like anybody anyone who loses a sibling it's it's very hard to come to terms with it i hope you know you, it's better never have to never for things to have to come to that but it did and we had to deal with it and worse than that we had to deal with it in the public eye So we were dealing with the loss of a sibling, but the rest of the world was mourning John, and it had to be a completely separate thing.
0: That must have made it much harder. It's no longer a private loss, I suppose. There's
1: nothing private about John, is there? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Which is part of the reason why I'm here. There's no escape. My partner and I were in the Himalayas. Um, We went to the place where the Dalai Lama resides so that we could hear him talking and be at the debates because it's very ritualistic and just be in that space and um, in order to have access to his talks, his speeches you had to surrender your passport which I did willingly I mean I may never have got it back I'm giving it to this monk He's you, know. you sure you're going to give me your passport? yeah you can have it I want access to the Dalai Lama's library and that's what you had to do and this monk was all robed exactly as you would expect a very nice choppy with great big trainers on and he was playing on an old cassette yellow submarine I mean that's up in the mountains in the Himalayas I thought you
0: were going to say one of them more spiritual
1: (laughs) well no you would no no no, it went with the trainers yeah (laughs) yeah um I've been in a village in France, in a small cafe, having a coffee on the way, you know, in a long, long drive, and we just pull into one of these little French cafes with the gingham table, plastic tablecloth, and a basket of ripped-up baguette on the table. I love these places. And they're playing All You Need Is Love, quietly, on the radio somewhere. I mean, there is no escape. It's easier to be inside than to try to pretend it didn't happen.
0: So for a long time, though you you didn't you know you didn't go to Beatles conferences and you no. didn't tell your story. So why why was that? Why did it take you so long?
1: Uh, well, it it wasn't actually that long. Um, it was five years in 1985. The BBC put out a program, a panorama program, commemorating five years since John had died. I had two children in the teens and a younger child, and the Two teenage children wanted to watch it, and I didn't, and they said, but everyone will have watched it in school, and I said, yeah, okay. So put the little fellow, David, to bed, and we sat down to watch it, and I cried from beginning to end. It was so wrong in many things. Mimi had three flying ducks on the wall. I don't know how they got away with that one. Cynthia had dark hair and a headscarf, and I'm assuming... I mean, the world was London-centric then, as it's even worse now, that north-south divide. I assume she's from Liverpool, so she must have dark hair and a headscarf. Must have. Not the raving beauty that was Cynthia... Yeah, the blonde beauty that John was besotted with. This was just a girl going out about her workaday business that looked like she had six children. Just not Cynthia. Julian wasn't mentioned at all. It went straight at the end to Yoko and Sean, sitting on a sofa, Sean was five, presumably in New York, I don't know, saying yes, this is a great way for Sean to learn about his father's family. Now, if you notice, I haven't mentioned me or my sister, Jackie. So you may not remember being young, Laura, but there were days when you could make a phone call and actually speak to a human being at the other end. So the next day, when the children had all gone to school, I gathered myself and I phoned Panorama. You couldn't do that now, could you? Within five minutes I was speaking to the director, producer. Don't know which one it was one. And I said, you know he asked me what it was and it's unthinkable now, isn't it? And I said, Well, I'm making a complaint about your panorama programme about John. Why? I said, Because so much of it was wrong. And he said, Well, what would you know? I said, I'm John's sister. And he said, John doesn't have any sisters. Oh,
0: was what he knew.
1: I said, you're speaking to John's sister, and there is another one a bit younger than me. He said, no, no, John doesn't have any sisters. We have done thorough research. I said, all right, then, we don't exist. Julian does. Oh, well, you know, you're, you're on a time constraint. So... We ended that conversation and um, I rang somebody called Bill Smithies. Do you know that name? He was the news editor of The Echo. Oh, okay. And Sandy Smithies, his wife, used to be the reviewer, uh, television reviewer in The Guardian. And Bill, lovely man, was the news editor. And I said, hello, Mr Smithies, again. It was through to him in no time. My name's Julia, and I'm John Lennon's sister. He said, Oh, hello, Julia. How are you? There's no dispute about... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Within an hour or two, he was in Chester, and we talked it through. And the first article came out in the Echo, Mm -hmm. which is the way I wanted it, because it's our local paper, which is why I'm speaking to you. It's our local. The, the, The visibility of John's family started then in that I was beginning to say this isn't right and this isn't right. And things were happening that, and being said that would never ever have been said had John been alive, were never said when John was alive. But after five years, I was so, like the rest of the family, in a, such a dark place that I just got on with my work. I was teaching three children, animals, dogs, cats, a mortgage. I just had my head down and got on with it, but that I could not let go. And I had my head buried to such an extent that I hadn't realised that this is the way people were thinking. I hadn't realised it at all.
0: So how do you realise people weren't aware of you, that you'd been written out of the story?
1: Well, not aware of me, but, you know, denigrating Cynthia like that and not mentioning her child and... Yes, not speaking to Jackie and I, his sisters, he's got cousins, he's got family. Mm. We're not hard to find, if you're doing a documentary. But to actually say, because they hadn't even bothered looking, you don't exist. I was just like, are you mad? It ended up that I went all out in defence of my mother. And an American journalist said the most lovely thing to me about six years ago interviewing me and he said well I've read the book well five stars to him for number one you've no idea how many people interview me about the book and they haven't got around to reading it yet he'd read the book and he said do you know Julia this is a, a wonderful love story to your mother and I've never forgotten that love letter to your mother
0: Yeah.
1: and indeed it is so I've succeeded there yeah <laughs>
0: And she does feel central to everything, really, to John's love of music, to... I mean, there's that lovely image of, of her, you know, dancing around the living room playing
1: music. Yeah, d- yes, indeed, and that was not just with John, that was with my cousin Leela, my cousin Stan, John, my mother, all dancing. And as I've said, Jackie and I leaping about, thinking we were dancing as well, you know. Yeah. We were all leaping about to Elvis.
0: That's really sweet.
1: So what, what was she like? Uh, a dynamo, really. A, a very... Uh, ..very good-looking woman, I remember. Um, the rest of the family said she looked like Rita Hayworth, and I can see that. Mm. And It sounds just a bit cocky coming from me, but she was very beautiful, she really was. Very small five foot two, I got another two inches, thank goodness, and my sister got another she 's about five foot seven right there in our lives reading to us painting with us, drawing with us doing our tables with us right from early days you know I knew up to my 12s when I was about six because it was one to do it do of all and then John would come and he would leap in and say seven and you have to say fifty six straight away we knew them by rote that. Well, we had to in school, yeah. but it was something that we did at home and the, the odd table would be thrown out at you and you had to come back with the answer straight away. But there's none of this 5, 10, 15, 20 business. It all had to be once, five, 5, 2, 5, 10. You had to do the whole thing, even though it was easy, so that when you came to 7, eights, and 9s, you were still using that pattern.
0: Yeah. So you said she was a dynamo. Was she, was she always very enthusiastic?
1: and Lively and active and musical. Mm-hmm. I've called her a woman out of her time. I've also called John a man out of his time. They were very, very alike in their talent, in their talent. So my mother, my father taught her to play the banjo. He came back from sea with a monkey and a banjo. Didn't meet the monkey, met the banjo. And he taught my mother to play by ear so she could play this mother-of-popped banjo and your uncle, Rod, says, I don't remember that banjo because whenever I went went in that kitchen, she took mine off me straight away. (laughs) (laughs) He'll tell you that. And so John learned to play the banjo and I remember her and I've sort of painted this picture in the book leaning over John and he'd have his hands on the frets and she'd be doing the strumming or the picking and then they'd turn it round so that John will be doing the strumming, and my mother will be then doing all this. And she also played the piano, and she played the ukulele, and loved George Formby, and um, the piano accordion, which was so big, it was one of the old-fashioned ones. Okay. The great big thick straps crisscross, and she used to sit down in an armchair, and strap herself into it, sort of over this way, over this way, this great big thing, and then you remember she was only small. And she'd put her arms on the arm of the chair and heave herself up to standing and sort of plant her feet. You could see it was heavy, but the music was heavenly, absolutely heavenly. I loved it, and I still do. It's different. I like any music that's got the piano accordion in it.
0: So your childhood had a soundtrack? It did. It?
1: Yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Mm. Mm.
0: And he would regularly visit you at home?
1: Yes, because my mother was there, his mother. That's where he wanted to be, yeah. Holidays, weekends, after school, instead of school. We all know the stories.
0: So presumably that was a really high point for you? Did you, like, did you look forward <laughs> no, to No, he was visits? just
1: be a child. Their childhood is their childhood... We, Jackie and I were living with our mother and our father, with our brother visiting. It wasn't totally outlandish, as it became when our mother died. That's when things became abnormal. Oh. Yeah. So it was more abnormal for John than it was for us because yeah. he was living based with Mimi, whereas we were based with our parents. Yeah, we were the lucky ones.
0: Oh. So we all live in him then who couldn't wait to pop round to see you
1: all. all the time, yeah, all the time. Oh not us, I mean we were there. It was our mother he was after.
0: And you said they were similar?
1: Very. Very similar. Yeah. Similar in sense of humour and in the musical, you know, they wanted to get at the music and listening to listening to the big records and yeah. My mother did support him in the first bits that they were doing. She went down to some hall, Garston Community Hall, Village Hall, and heard them there. Mm. Uh, I think she went to Reese's Ballroom and somewhere in Litherland. I think she, she might have gone to Litherland Town Hall mm. because she was only there for the very, very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But she fully supported him doing it.
0: Well, I was going to ask about the support. So he's got. On one hand, he's got Mimi saying you're never going to make a living from music, and then the other hand, Mm. he's got your mum. Did it? Would it? Would he have done it anyway, or do you think that her influence was so important to him in encouraging him?
1: It's a very good question. I really don't know. I think he was quite determined, but you can't take away that he was wasn't encouraged by our mother. So that's a, a a good thing to ask because. If she had been, say, a seamstress or an office worker or a stay at home member, she was without the musical interest. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I
0: guess you never find out. So, you were talking about how your life changed after she died. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're dealing with the loss of this wonderful person in your life and and your mum. It's very hard for me to imagine. So how did things change with John at that point? Did you still manage to see plenty of him?
1: Well, he was 17. So Jackie... I was 11 and Jackie was 8. So there's no doubt whatsoever that Jackie was... the, the Jackie was the one that was hit worst by the whole thing. John was 17, unable to go out and about and express himself in other ways. Paul said in something he wrote, that uh, John would go upstairs on a bus and go backwards and forwards and not get off it. Mm -hmm. I suppose it was the only place it could be entirely by himself. He had to deal with it in his way, and we had to deal with it in our way, but the age difference between us meant that he... He wasn't in a, a locked-in family situation like we were. He was able to get out oh. more. We were at school. We just had to deal with it. Oh. Well, it's not just me. I'm not being the victim here. This happens all over the place. You have to deal with it. You, do, you haven't got a choice.
0: Yeah,
1: carry on. Carry on. You have, either that or uh, jump in the Mersey. Yes, I'm glad it didn't do that as well. But I mean, you know, it's either one thing or the other, isn't it? And uh, children are necessarily deep down quite stoic because it's a matter of survival. You have to jump hurdles, but basically, in the human being, in the animal world, we want to survive, don't we? And we do what needs to be done. To survive. Now that includes John as well, and he had an outlet in music. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we're just over the road from the cavern at the moment, but you didn't. Am I right? You didn't actually get to
1: see him perform. Never. There? No. Oh. Because we were that much younger. Yeah. yeah.
0: But you did. You did see them. I think
1: it was. Oh, we saw them in. Um, we saw them play at the Empire. Oh, okay. Yeah, and in London at the Finsbury Park Astoria.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We just didn't get to the cavern because we lived in Walton. It's too far. Yeah. The last bus back to Penny Lane left at 20 past nine. He had to get off at Penny Lane at the terminus. It's a bit of a walk. Run. Mm-hmm. It's a, a pretty long, dark walk along Men of Avenue.
0: So when you did go and see them, was it as his sister? Yes. Yeah,
1: Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You... yeah and we, we went several times with the whole family to the cavern. Of course, they also did <laughs> what John called the official premiere of A Hard Day's Night. Now, the the real one had been the night before in London with Princess Margaret and the famous Rattley jewellery mm. stuff. And we wanted to go to that one and John said no, the real one is in Liverpool, believe me. And um, they closed the city down, which was the only time since Dixie Dean came home in 1922. They just closed the city. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, we were in the town hall on the balcony, yeah. and I can go up there now and I'll look and I think, did that really happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did it really happen? It was, uh, it was really amazing. And of course, we all went in to see, uh, see, the film and um, John had lost us by then because we'd all been separated and we were all sitting down and we were next to or just in front of the mayor of Liverpool and uh, John came out with the curtain through the curtain before anything and everything went quiet because he'd appeared and he he said I've lost my family are you here? are you here? and we said yeah we're here we're here oh right good (laughs) and he disappeared again that's before it started (laughs) because he was aware that we might have been still back there (laughs) So yeah, so uh, they were the the great fun bits, really, really good bits.
0: Yeah, I bet. And what was it like seeing them perform for you
1: personally? In a film?
0: No, on stage.
1: Oh, (sighs) not much different from the television, really. What I didn't like, and I still wouldn't like now, is the screaming. You know, if you went to see someone now, like I'm hoping to go to, I've got the, the uh, cards in there. Nobu is doing Ratmaninoff in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to go straight up to the fill when we finished uh, to try and get a ticket. Can you imagine people screaming through that? I mean, it wouldn't last two seconds, would it? No. no.
0: And being on stage and trying to perform with that must have been.
1: Uh, and I know you say, "Oh, well, it's rock," and it. I mean, it started with Frank Sinatra, probably. It carried on with Elvis, definitely. And then when the Beatles came, it was just like you couldn't hear anything. Mm. It was just like I never got it. It's not that I don't love bands. I'm an ACDC fan, and I love the Rolling Stones. I wouldn't go to a concert and scream all the way through.
0: Not actually listen to the music. Not
1: listen to the music, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so, yeah, that must have been quite strange seeing
1: a whole... It was. Uh, We were in Finsbury Park Astoria, and um, I've told this little story in the book... And we went along. The Rolling Stones were in the dressing room, so we knew that they were really famous Mm. because the Rolling Stones were there. And um, we... It was sort of not not five minutes, five minutes. Everyone was drinking Coca-Cola, so we thought. Theirs was laced, ours wasn't. Mm. And we went on the stage, went to the side, and I wanted to go down. There were four rows at the front. That were completely empty, that had not happened here in the empire, and we've been there three or four times. I said, "John, we want to go and sit down there, Jackie, and we want to go and sit down there." I was the spokesperson, and he said, "No, no, 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 no." no. Uh, No, no, you don't want to go down that. We do, we do, we don't. No, no. I said, John, there's nobody in the first four rows. Let's go down. In the end, he went, oh, all right then. So Jackie and I jumped off the side of the stage. The curtains closed. They're all behind, getting ready. Everyone's getting excited. And we went and sat on the second row back, the two seats at the end. So we were very naive. We all were at that age. I was 16. We were like probably what 11 is now. So we're sitting there. And the curtain comes up, and John's doing his, you know, she loves you bit, bouncing up and down. And everyone from the back appeared at the front. <laughs> <laughs> and security appeared, and, and John said, went off to the side of his mouth and said, Get the girls, get the girls. And we were hauled ignominiously back onto the stage at the uh-huh. side and under the curtain. And John's still singing, he's said, told you so! <laughs> <laughs> he knew what was going to happen, and we didn't.
0: Let you discover it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Mm. So you kind of um, didn't, you sort of not lost touch exactly, but you weren't in contact as much?
1: No, no. Well, nobody was in contact with them, really, because they were, like, traveling, weren't they? Mm. Mm. It was, it was their business it's like having if your father is in business and he's travelling around the world yeah
0: yeah. it's not like he was on Facebook updating you
1: no, no no
0: and then um, the Yoko years
1: happened I guess well they did yes they did and we all sort of lost touch then we all know what happened well I didn't realise that we didn't realise as a family that John was as spaced out as he was for those first few years we really didn't Mm -hmm. that's how detached we were, we didn't realise and the first contact back was in what they call the the lost weekend I know May Pang really well and uh, she's lovely and she's filled me in on so many things that they did and where they were and everything just quietly together Mm -hmm. John phoned in about February 1974. And I was living over the water in the whirl. And my aunt phoned, and she was in Edinburgh, and she said, Julia, stay up till midnight. Now I had two children. I was tired. I wasn't working, but I was like, hmm. I said, all right, then. Um, Is there a reason for this? Yes, you're getting a phone call. John's going to phone you. And he did. So how long has it been since you have spoken? I'm trying to think. I phoned him. My aunt gave me the number, and I phoned him because, I'm just thinking, had the um, trial of getting through because there were questions, questions, questions. John was expecting the call. And there were about six questions about, you know, if I was me. And um, in the end... I said, ''Oh, it's all right, it's all right.'' And she said, ''There's just one more question, please. ''John is here, there's just one more question. ''What's your father's middle name?'' I said, ''Albert after Prince Albert.'' And he came straight on the phone. I said, ''I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry.'' And we talked for four hours about everything. And we talked many, many times after that. Um, We got letters when Sean was born... And the last time I spoke to him, actually, was on November the 17th, just before he died. I was in uh, Rock Ferry, again, over in the Wirral, with my aunt, my middle aunt, Nanny. It was her birthday. And I'd been at work, and I went straight to see her afterwards. And um, John phoned her. And she said, "Julia's here," and I spoke to him then. And he said, "I'll be seeing you soon." Mm. Mm. So the contact was maintained. It wasn't always like, wasn't a weekly affair or anything like that, but there was contact. Obviously, we were all waiting for him to come home, all of us. Yeah. Now that house over in Rock Ferry, if you know the houses, they're big, Bedford Park, absolutely huge. They're mostly in flats now. Mm. Nanny was, uh, it was an old family house that first, the other sister, had bought, another sister, had bought it in 1933 or something like that. And so it had been in the family all those years. Nanny used to say, There's an awful lot of people next door, dear. And I say, has yeah, three families, Nanny, <laughs> because it was this huge house, this huge garden. They had a bungalow built at the back and you couldn't even see it. It sold part of the land. And it was called Ardmore. And John said, in November, he said, we'll all have to meet at Ardmore initially. There's so many of you. We'll all get together at Ardmore and then I will see all of you. So that's what we were going to meet in that house.
0: Yeah. Mm. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Even now, I imagine thinking about, yeah. So, um, so as, as I was sort of reading, I think it was an interview with you and you were saying that one of the way you've dealt with all of this is to to sort of continue his legacy and honour his legacy, I suppose? Is that still fair? Well,
1: I don't think of it like that. Because he honours his own legacy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need me. Um, By birth, I'm one of John's sisters. We shared the same fabulous mother. So there are certainly things that we have in common... Apart from blood, there are things and lives and remembrances that we would have in common. I am in no way a caretaker of John's legacy. He's doing that all by himself. But I'm very proud, and that's for sure.
0: Can you imagine what he'd be doing now if he was still here?
1: I, I think, I mean, I'm making this up, aren't I? I'm thinking writing, I'm thinking painting. But I am just sort of assuming.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I guess the world now is easier in some ways to be famous in, maybe. You can escape more.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, It was a harder job when The Beatles came up. They had to forge their way through brick walls almost, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And now with social media, you can be a sensation. And nobody really knows who you are. Yeah. strange. I haven't got used to any of that yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure we'll ever get completely used to it. You're now very involved with the cavern. You're one of the directors here. Yes, Yes, I am, So how did that come about?
1: Well, I'd gone to Australia with Bill, one of the older directors, Bill and George and Dave. So there were three of them then. I'd gone to Australia with Bill and they were opening a cavern club there to celebrate 40 years of the Beatles having arrived into Adelaide. So we were invited by the city of Adelaide with the mayor and the mayor and the mayor, and it was all a a sort of bit of an upmarket trip. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And we were all just talking in some downtime, and Bill said that they could do with some investment. And... It was just, it was complete, complete happenstance. I had bought a house, done it up, sold it. Bought another house, done it up, sold it. I was on to the third house. Now, we were living somewhere else, but it was, this was an investment thing. And I'd actually got the survey organised for the next house. And I just said to Bill, "I could do that." and he said, "You could?" And I said, "Well, I could." He said, Go and sleep on it, which I did, and almost as I woke up in the morning, he's almost outside the door <laughs> and I said, You know what? I'm going to do it it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? It was, it was a huge gamble, but I felt John there. Yeah. It was just like, do it, just do it. And it's kept John in the cavern. Well, he owns it now, doesn't he? He owns it.
0: It always seems like the people involved in it and the place itself, it seems like there's so much joy involved in it.
1: We have the biggest fun, we do. I mean, it's a business, it's a serious business, but um, we laugh a lot, the fans are fantastic, we have, sometimes we sit and we say, this is work, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody's working really hard, believe me, particularly here in this office, you see the teams out there, and well, actually, after Beetle Week, it's not so much... This is the only time when everyone sort of takes a deep breath. You can, I can walk in here any time because I don't do the nuts and bolts of the business. I'm sort of PR. They're very kind to me. They let me off lightly. Um, I come in and everyone's tapping away and doing and busy and everyone... It doesn't stop. Believe me, it doesn't stop. And then there's this great rise to beetle wheat that we've just had which is enormously successful and we want to make sure that everyone has the best time and that the minute they hit their put their feet back in south america or sweden or russia or canada north america australia new zealand immediately they start thinking right i'm going back there yeah
0: well, I was looking at one of the Beatle Week Facebook groups yesterday, and there were people saying, How are you coping with the
1: hangover from yeah. it? Because I think
0: they're just missing it
1: already. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is, it's sort of strange afterwards. While you're in the middle of it, it's like you're in a vortex. You don't really realise. And then you come out and you think, Has it really gone? Are we in the eye of the storm? We're going to hit the next bit. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a hugely exciting thing to do. Masses of hard work for the office team, truly. But um, well worth it.
0: So when you see the fans in the cavern who've come here from all over the world, um, it, it's clearly a, it's a very special mm. place yes, to so is. many people, and the history of it yeah. is very important.
1: Yes, the history is vital, and some of the new fans, the ones that sort of haven't been coming for year on year, some of them do actually say, "Well, is it the cavern?" And the answer is very definitely it is. It did close in May 1973 the warehouse was at street level because it was original warehouse and that was demolished and the cavern club underneath it, because it was um, down, 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 anyone who's been down all those stairs, you're going subterranean Um, the cavern underneath it was sort of knocked down and filled in I remember a car park to the right for a long time then in the early 1980s, that whole site was excavated and the archways were still there. The cavern archways had survived the filling in. They'd remained intact. So the whole site was then redeveloped and the cavern was rebuilt on 75% of the original site to exactly the same dimensions using many of the original cavern bricks. And the club reopened again on the 25th of April, nineteen eighty four it's just now a thriving music venue owned and operated by Cavern City Tours since July nineteen ninety one and here we are in twenty nineteen. And we've had playing there Paul McCartney as we all know a couple of times, Oasis, Travis, Paul Rogers, Elbow, The Arctic Monkeys, The Coral, Adele, she launched 21 there, Jesse J, The Wanted, Jake Bug, Gilbert S. Sullivan and just recently, Joe Bonamassa. I mean, it's quite a quite a lineup, and yeah. they're still coming in.
0: And people are are there experiencing what the atmosphere would have been like. Back absolutely, in the
1: absolutely. Beatles? I was in the cavern then, although I didn't see the Beatles perform there. As I got older, I was able to come in because we lived on the outskirts of the city, and the atmosphere is just as electric and exciting and danceable, and the music is fabulous as it always was.
0: Yeah. And you're involved in Strawberry Field as
1: well. The building is fabulous, all light and air and beautiful gardens. It really is lovely. It's got a shop, a gallery, a cafe. It's got a visitor exhibition with videos. It really is a beautiful place to spend time. You just be able to go there, walk in, sit down, have a coffee, have something to eat and just chill and beautiful gardens as a meditation garden and there'll be some horticulture as well mm-hmm. very you? very nice
0: sorry did john ever mention strawberry field
1: yes well not to me he mentioned it to the entire world didn't he well yes and he called it his psychoanalytic poem and he said it was his own favorite song so you can't get better than that mm.
0: that's great well thanks so much julia for okay.
1: thank you, you. If you are enjoying Beatles City, please remember to subscribe, rate and review it on your favourite podcast app.